If you are familiar uh, with the NBA and the sport of basketball, which is my personal uh, favorite sport, you might recognize the guy up on the screen. Uh, the online uh, uh, journal, The Medium, had this uh, really fascinating article uh, that was known as the number one draft pick who forgot how to shoot. And so Markel Fultz uh, had one year of college basketball with the Washington uh, Huskies, and he was a dog, so to speak. Uh, he averaged 23 points per game his freshman year, just under six rebounds and just under six assists. And so the next year, he was drafted with the first-round draft pick by the Philadelphia 76ers. But when he got into the NBA, even a few months in, the organization said, this is not the same kid that we drafted. Supposed to be the perfect complement to Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, two rising stars at the time, Fultz seemingly forgot how to shoot the ball. And as uh, people started to get really interested, what, what's going on with this guy that we know was phenomenal in college, where did he go? Uh, they started digging into his personal life, and they found that uh, Fultz had a really close mentor and a mom who were kind of uh, arguing about how he should be living his new life of superstardom. Uh, it got to the point where his mom put cameras all throughout his house and called him up to 12 times a day, just telling him, how he should live his life. Uh, and so he was under a lot of pressure from those closest to him. Could it be that all of this external pressure was causing an internal implosion? There was certainly speculation. But uh, through some doctor's appointments, they realized it wasn't just that his kind of external world was causing in, inner turmoil. Uh, they also found out that he had something called Thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, I'm not going to try to break that down for you because I know nothing about the medical world, but let's just put it this way. Markel Fultz's body forgot how to shoot the ball. Uh, he had to go through uh, physical therapy, and it took him a while to even uh, recover his shot. They, they said that for a while, every time he'd go to shoot, he would have like a hitch, and he would pause. You could literally tell his body was remembering how to play this game he loved. Uh, the picture on the screen is uh, the more current Markel Fultz, who just averaged 14 points a game and six assists this past year for the Orlando Magic. So he's well on his way to his aspirations to becoming an NBA All-Star one day, hopefully. But what happens when a basketball player forgets how to shoot? What happens when a basketball player forgets how to play basketball? Or maybe you're familiar uh, with one of my favorite movies from the early uh, 2000s, uh, 50 First Dates, uh, where Adam Sandler's character falls in love with Drew Barrymore's character. And, uh, and as he's pursuing this woman, he comes to discover that uh, she has been in a really bad accident and she has zero short-term memory whatsoever. Literally every time she goes to bed and she wakes up the next day, she doesn't remember anything from the day before. She can only remember things from years past. And so they end up having, at the end of the movie, they kind of show how these two work it out. They have to show her a video every single day reminding her that she's a daughter, reminding her that she's a wife and a friend to certain people. What happens 
when a woman forgets who she is, what happens when a basketball player forgets how to shoot, and what happens when a Christian forgets that they're a Christian? What happens when a new creation forgets that they've been set apart to live as a new humanity and they're bound and tied to their old selves? We're in a series right now called Whitewater uh, where we are tearing apart the book, uh, the letter, I should say, to the first uh, or to the church of Corinth. This is the first letter that Paul wrote out of two. And so we are in chapter six, week six. Uh, if you've been journeying with us, just want to say good morning uh, to all those at Lorraine Correctional, to those at our Olmstead Falls campus. It's great to be seen by you. And I'm excited to dive into the word this morning. And we are going to talk about recovering royalty. Recovering royalty. Let's pray. Jesus. Have your way in this space today, God. Uh, break down your word so we can understand it, Lord. Fill us up with the Holy Spirit and give us divine revelation and impartation today. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. First Corinthians 6, 1 through 8 reads this. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we'll judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. If you have been following along in this series, you know that the Church of Corinth is a jacked up church. Uh, they are some messy people. In fact, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Jonathan preach on 1 Corinthians 5. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, we see them mishandle, misjudge a moral situation. Uh, there was a man sleeping with his stepmother Paul says this behavior wouldn't even be tolerated among pagans. Nonetheless, it's happening between you guys. And then he accuses them of pride. He says they're hiding pretty much behind a guise of grace. And he says, no, what you should do is you should expel him from your gathering until he repents. And Paul also makes sure that we realize, listen, I'm not telling you to judge those outside of the church. That's God's job. But you've got to judge those inside of the church. And when we hear that uh, idea of judge, it's all for the point of restoration. If you were to read 2 Corinthians, you would see that they do push the brother out of their gathering. He repents, and they welcome him back with open arms. It's all restorative. But in 1 Corinthians 5, they misjudge 
a moral issue. And now in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 6, they're misjudging a civil matter, a civil dispute. And Paul is feisty. He is frustrated. Anybody get in trouble a lot when you were younger? All right, some of you are lying in here. I wasn't the only bad kid. I know that. Any of you have mamas that they, they, they ask you one question when you're in trouble, and before you can get the answer out, they've already asked you seven other questions? Well, that's, what, well, that's what's happening with Paul right now. Paul asks the Corinthians eight questions in eight verses. Do you dare? Do you not know? Is it even possible? Why not rather be wrong? He's going off on them. And so uh, Stephen Um, he, is, uh, he wrote the Word of the Cross commentary series, and he categorizes Corinthians in a very helpful way, I think, for us this morning. He says that verses one through four of 1 Corinthians 6 uh, is the consideration of identity. Paul's asking them to consider who they are in Christ. Uh, five through eight is the crisis of identity. And then we've not read this yet. We'll get to this later. Uh, nine through 11, the end of the chapter, chapter, that's the recovery of identity. So beyond this being about uh, court cases and litigation and things like that, which it is about those, but beyond that, this is an identity crisis for the Corinthians. So let's go back uh, through verse one through four rather quickly. If any of you has a dispute with one another, with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Do you dare? Paul is like, listen, there is a clear line in his mind between the godly and the ungodly, between the justified and the unjustified, between the saved and the unsaved. For him, those who've bowed knee to King Jesus have been given a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Not only do they get the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, but they have access, therefore, to the mind of Christ. And Paul is saying, do you forfeit your judgment uh, scenario to people who don't have fellowship with the Spirit and the mind of Christ, you've got to be kidding me. That's crazy. Why would you do that? Verse 2, he says, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? This isn't just a teardown fest that Paul's having with them. He's also trying to trigger their, their, their minds to passages in the Old Testament and saying, hey, you're called to more. You're actually going to judge the world one day. So these temporary situations, they, they pale in comparison to the fact that you're going to judge the world. And I think sometimes even today in the church, we hear that and we're like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I really believe that. No, Paul's saying, like, that's what you're going to do as God's holy people Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life? And if you were thrown by verse 2, you're certainly thrown by verse 3 now even more so. We're going to judge angels? What? Like, I've never heard this. Why haven't I ever heard this before? Like, I'm supposed to judge angels? Paul's saying, yeah, like you are going to be in the judgment seat over the whole world, including angels, because of your relationship with Jesus, you have access to authority, thus you have access to royalty. What I just said, most Christians in America have no idea that that's even true. You've been given authority in Christ. 
The things of this world right now, the temporal things, they pale in comparison to eternal things that Christ has in store for you. The Bible says that we are conquerors, more than conquerors, and co-heirs in Christ Jesus. It says that we are the priesthood of believers. That doesn't mean that you need to go to a priest. That means that you are a priest. In line with the Old Testament scriptures, if you have Jesus in your life. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? He says, why would you ask people who don't have fellowship with the Spirit, people who don't have the mind of Christ to weigh in on these situations? That's foolish. See, Paul is reminding these people that they are the Lord's people. They're the Lord's holy people. He's reminding them that they're going to judge the whole world. He's reminding them that they're even going to judge the angels. If that throws you off, N.T. Wright says that Paul is pulling from scriptures like what we see in Daniel 7.27. It says, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Friend, I don't know if you caught that. It says that the kingdoms of this world will be handed over to the Lord's holy people. Who are the holy people? You, me, the Corinthians. They weren't acting very holy. They were acting the opposite. Nonetheless, Paul says, It's these scriptures, these Hebrew ancient texts that are shaping the backdrop of his mind, leading him to a place where he's saying to this church, you've got to be kidding me. Paul is going a Denzel Washington remember the Titans mode on these guys, right? As God's holy people, you've been established in authority. Have you forgotten your royalty? Uh. I had a brother from the church ask me a question the other day. I thought, it was, I thought it was awesome, and it was complimentary. He said, he said, hey, man, I really love it when you preach. You tell great stories. He said, are they, are they true? I said, no, actually, there's this website, and if you, no, I'm just kidding. If I tell stories about my personal life, they're true. And, uh, and maybe he was recalling a story that I told about a year ago when I preached. I preached a message called The Price of Praise, And uh, I talked about how uh, for a week I was neighbors with Enrique Iglesias. I was in my grandpa's mansion. Anybody remember that story? You remember that? Just wave at me. None of you remember that. Okay, okay, sweet. All right, I'm like, man, y'all have bad memories, okay? Uh, So if you don't know that story, long long story short, uh, yeah, for spring break in Florida, we stayed in my grandpa, uh, my dad, uh, my bro, I can't talk, my friend's grandfather's mansion on South Beach, and uh, Enrique Iglesias was our neighbor. Uh, We tried to meet him. He didn't want to meet us. I wonder why. I thought it was pretty cool, but I guess not. And and so, uh, but that night, we get in, and we have this, like, massive pool party. Uh, There's, like, an in-ground pool. The ocean's right behind us, and we're, you know, living it up. We're living the dream. We're having a great time, and it it comes about 1 o'clock. We're all college guys, and, you know, when you were in college, fellas, you remember this. You ate, like, garbage 99% of the time. And, and the only vegetables you had was the spinach that might have come on your, uh, on your pizza or something like that. You, you, you remember those days? And, and we're hungry, and, and we're like, hey, we got to find somewhere to eat. 
And so we, we do a little Google search, we find a restaurant, and we hop on our longboards. Anybody knows, know what a longboard is? It's just a longer version of a skateboard, not meant for tricks or anything, just meant for coasting. We hop on our longboards, all five, six of us. We roll out of that fancy development with Lamborghinis and Range Rovers and all that stuff. Uh, we, we, we totally look out of place. And you know where we went and ate that night? Denny's. And all the broke college kids said, amen. And there's literally no point to that story that I just told you besides to tell you that. But something clicked to me when I reflect on that story that you could be in the midst of royalty, yet you could choose to dine at Denny's. You could be positioned in a position of authority. You could be given access to, to the spiritual Ruth Chris, and yet you could choose to play in the dirt. You could choose to dine at Denny's, Paul is saying, as God's holy people, you've been established in authority, and authority, have you forgotten your royalty? I love Denny's, by the way. First uh, Corinthians 6, 5 through 8, he says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So Paul is going in on this church. This is a wake-up call. And it's here that we need to take a little bit of time uh, that, that it might not, for you, if you love the Bible, you love like historical, uh, cultural context and stuff, you love this part. If you don't really like this stuff, this is the part where you can uh, check out. But, but this is what's gonna f uh, help us frame the situation that Paul's talking about. So I'm gonna hit you with a bunch of other people's thoughts that are not my own that helped me write this message, all right? So Kent Hughes, he says it like this. The court was a quick way to move up the ranks and to establish one's supremacy, honor, status, and position. Remember patronage? This was what they were doing. They even used the legal system in this way, and the Apostle Paul is saying it is appalling and shocking that they would do this. So take that quote, store it back in your mind, uh, and keep in mind that there are people who are saying in the scholarly world that this was all about position. This was all about ranking. So this person in the church is offended by another person in the church, and they're, they're like, we're going to pull out the big guns here. You know, you wanna, you're going to step on my toes. You're going to step on my pride. Yeah, we'll see you in court, pal. We'll show you how this works. Craig Keener, a, 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 co a commentator, a scholar I really like, he says this. Like modern North American society, Roman society was extremely litigious. Cases began to be heard at dawn and sometimes could be argued as late as sunset. Judges were always chosen from among the well-to-do and most legal disputes revolved around money. Shocker, right? Members of the upper class received better treatment in the law courts. Indeed, this preference was written into penalties prescribed in the laws. So let me just take that big thought, reduce it. Basically, Spurgeon echoes this. If you had the biggest bribe, you were gonna take the suit. 
This was a money making, a, a, back, a, a money background court system. It was, it was corrupt, it was crooked. So with these ideas, also keep this in mind, Paul was Jewish. In his own words, he was the Jew of Jews. And Jews had court, courts in their synagogues. And so Paul being Jewish, growing up with courts in their synagogues, he's like, the Jews handle their own when it comes to civil disputes, and how much more so should the church, the Christians, who've been given, once again, let me say it, fellowship with the Spirit and the mind of Christ. He's like, this is preposterous. You're gonna take your authority as, as Jesus' holy people and you're gonna hand it over to pagans who are jockeying for position, who are trying to rise the ranks and who accept bribes? What? What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Paul, Paul just can't even wrap his mind around this. Now, if that's everything that is happening in the passage, we have to also talk about what's not happening in the passage. Paul is not saying that one should never go to court. Okay? If you've read the book of Acts, Paul is mistreated as a Roman citizen. And so what does he do? He appeals to the Roman court. Right? Paul understands that sometimes unbelievers will take believers to court, and the believer has to go and defend themselves. That is not a wrong thing. It's also really important on this side of human history, especially in light of what's happened in the church, in religion, unfortunately, over the past few decades. Uh, we're seeing different things come out all the time, right, about, about uh, massive church scandals that generally all scholars agree that this is not some sort of cr uh, criminal activity. This is a civil matter, a civil dispute that could have been handled in-house. In what we see a lot of times, unfortunately, in, in the church world over the last few decades is there's something that involves criminal activity, tax evasion, embezzlement, sex scandal, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and then the church tries to handle it in-house and it blows up and it leaves an even worse taste in people's mouth when it gets out and, and it should have actually went to the governing authorities, right? Remember, Paul also, in the same breath as he writes this, he also says that you should adhere to the law, okay? So keep that in mind. Paul is not saying that criminal activity shouldn't be reported to the governing authorities. What Paul is saying so we talked about the background, what's happening. We talked about what he's not saying. But what Paul is saying is if two people share the mind of Christ, they should have the conviction of Christ in their hearts, and that your first response as a Jesus person should be to make things right with the person that you offend or grieve. Paul, even though he didn't hear Jesus preach this, it's probably been passed down to him, how Jesus said to handle conflict in Matthew 18. Say a brother or sister offends you. Go face to face with them. Settle it. Doesn't work? Take two or three from the church. Settle it. Still doesn't work? Take the matter in front of the whole church. Settle it. Still doesn't work? Treat them like you would a pagan or a tax collector. For Paul then, 
Are you still with me? That's a lot of context. But for Paul then, he says, man, it is an absolute, absolutely devastating loss that we've even got to this point where you can't settle it between you guys. Uh, the Greek, I wasn't very good at Greek, but, but the Greek, uh, I think, is olos atema, literally meaning completely, altogether, entirely, deteriorating, destroyed, messed up. He says it, it's, it's completely, altogether a loss that you can't work out conflict between yourselves as Christians. Paul is trying to wake up this broken Corinthian church. He's trying to remind them of, of who they are. And this is the, the portion where we see that they're in an absolute identity crisis. They've forgotten who they are because they've forgotten whose they are. See, it would be better to be wronged or cheated than to trying to win, uh, try, to try winning against another Christian at the expense of the relationship and at the expense of your witness. See, I haven't even touched on the witness thing yet. That bothers Paul, but for him, it's a complete loss already that there's lawsuits among these two supposed to be brothers. Maybe you're not in a lawsuit today. Maybe you are. Maybe you're looking for wisdom, but maybe you're not. And you're like, well, how do I identify this passage? I've never been to uh, court. I've never taken another believer to court. Yeah, you can still pull out of this. Who's the people that you're holding hostage in your mind that have wronged you? Who's the people that you hold hostage in your heart who have stepped on your toes or offended you? Maybe God is speaking to you today that you need to release that person, and you need to release that bitterness. See, most times, if we boil it down, I've never been to court, heard a lot of stories of people who have, but most times, I think if we boil it down, it comes down to this. Court is usually nine times out of 10 about money. It's what it's usually about. And Paul is saying, not in a criminal matter, not if an unbeliever takes you there, but if it's something, a civil matter that could be handled from believer to believer, where you both have the mind of Christ, where, you're bo where both of your natural first steps as, as believing Christians should be, Lord, I just want to make it right with that other person. Paul, Paul is saying, y'all, you're going to judge the world, you're going to judge angels, Yet you can't work this thing out between the two of you. You're going to risk, you're going to risk letting some financial dispute get in the way of loving people and being like Jesus. See, I think we get in this mentality so often where we take on the posture of you have no idea what it costs. You have no idea what it, what it would cost me. Not just in rights financially, you have no, no idea what it would cost me. In, in terms of pride, that person, that person stepped all over me. They walked all over me. And I think to, to that, Paul would say, no, you have no idea what it costs. You have no idea what it costs God 
to allow his son Jesus to take the cross, to be cheated, to be wronged, to be accused wrongly and humiliated through the very people created in his image. We think we don't know what it costs. Paul says, no, you don't know what it costs. It'd be better to be wronged or cheated. Better to be wronged or cheated, because guess what? You'll actually get more than some sort of financial reward. You'll get to fellowship with Christ in your sufferings. Talk to anybody who's been through great suffering, great pain, great loss, and guess what? You'll usually find, if they're Christians, it's brought them closer to Jesus. He says, no, no, you don't know what it costs. See, You don't owe any debts to God because of Jesus' sacrifice. However, you do owe a debt to one another. Maybe you're like, I don't don't know if I agree with that. Romans 13, 8. Guess who wrote this? Oh, yeah. His name's Paul. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Let no debt remain outstanding. So if you owe money to somebody or somebody saying, hey, you owe me a hundred bucks, rather than just saying like, hey, I'm gonna blow that person off, they're a liar. Jesus, or John the Baptist said things like this. You have two coats, give one to the poor. Maybe, just maybe, God is saying to you, hey, You know what? Show that person radical grace. Yeah, they're wrong. Isn't it better to be wronged? Let no debt remain outstanding except the debt to love one another. While Jesus has cleared your account before his eyes, you still owe the debt to one another to love well. And now a quick word as I close on our witness That was all about the the ruining of the relationship between the man and his brother. But Paul also says, you do this in front of unbelievers. You've got to be kidding me. See, um, two pictures coming up on the screen. Uh, This is what's known as the Bema seat. Uh, Precept Austin, uh, in uh, in one of their commentaries, it says this. It says, uh, the law cases in Corinth would have been tried at the Bema seat. In the center of the busy agora, or marketplace, where all the pagans would be entertained by the brethren litigating against each other, a very sad witness. And so you see the pictures. It's a wide open space where just people walking by doing their daily tasks can kind of focus in and zone in on the court matters at hand. Now picture this. Christianity is this new, weird, fringy movement. Let's say two people are passing by, and they're, they're, they're talking, and they're just like, the one's like, hey man, have you heard of like this new thing called the way? Followers of the way? And, and the one guy's like, uh, dude, actually... You won't believe this. I've, I've been to some of their gatherings. And he's like, no way. Tell me about it. What's going on? He's like, dude, it's kind, it's kind of weird, man. Like, it's kind of weird. So first off, they don't believe that Caesar is the son of the gods. They think that Jesus is the son of God. What? They also don't believe that Caesar is Lord. Check this out. They say that Jesus is Lord. Are you, are you kidding me? Dang, that's bold. Yeah, not only that, check this out. So I was hanging out with them, and their gatherings, they're called love feast, agape feast. What? What do they do? 
They eat meals together. They sing songs together. They pray. Somebody teaches about the like this, this, this sacred text they have. They, they talk about Jesus. And then the pagan person obviously says, well, at the agape feast, at the love feast, is there at least sex? You know? Because you think that's offensive. Read about that culture. No, man. They're actually really strict on that part of everything. But they do believe that you eat this bread and you drink this wine and it's symbol of this dead guy who apparently rose to life's body, Jesus. Dude, these guys sound weird. I gotta go check it out. And then all the while you're having that conversation, you walk by the Agora, the marketplace, the Bema seat, and you see people ha going at it. And the one guy says, no way, these are two people that were at that follower of the way gathering that I was just at. Oh my goodness, did you hear what he's saying about him? Oh, dude, I think I just saw him slide the, slide the judge money. Like, this is crazy. Actually, you know what? They don't act any different from the rest of us. So what's the point? What's the point? Um, my wife... Uh, she remembers things through pictures. So uh, she really likes pictures. I remember things through like words and, and things like that. And she's got a very photographic memory. And so a few, a few Christmases ago, um, we had got family pictures uh, with this. She's Lena. That Lena, she's one in this picture. She's three now. And uh, so for Christmas, I got her this nice uh, shutterfly canvas uh, and I was super excited to give it to her. She knew it was coming. It wasn't like a super surprise. I don't know if she knew what pi picture that I picked for it or whatever. And so this was uh, supposed to be coming in the mail for us uh, just in time for Christmas so we could hang it as the centerpiece in our living room. And so we get the box, and I, and I, I pull her into the room with me, like, we're about to open your, oh, your presents here. And, and, we, and we rip open the box, and we take out the tissue paper. And I no longer have the canvas that was giving to, given to me, but I have one that kind of looks like that canvas, at least pretty close, coming up on the screen. And we open that up. And so I just heard, like, what a lot of you said, oh, cute. Yeah, true. But it's not my kid. It's not my kid, and it's not, and, I, and I'm not in the picture. It was like this weird moment where it's like, oh, cute, yeah, but that's not what I paid for. That's not my child, and that's, I'm not even in the picture and I think God looks at us, his church, when we're, when we're throat to throat with people and we're backbiting, we're backstabbing. I think that he looks at us and he says, wait, that's, that doesn't look like anything like my kids and you've removed me from the picture. This isn't what I paid for. So Paul, he doesn't end the letter at their throats. You know what he does? 
This is the part called recovering your identity. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul, probably everything in him is like, man, you're not even acting any different. But he still says, and that's what some of you were. That's not who you are. That's who you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you were. You used to be people who took it in front of the Bama seat. You used to backbite. You used to gossip. You used to try to get every penny out of the person that wronged you, but that's not who you are anymore. And friend, just like the Corinthians had to do it, I want to challenge you this morning that maybe, just maybe it's time that you recover your royalty. The world deserves a better picture. The right picture. That's what Jesus paid for. The worship team is about to come back up. And we're going to go into a time of song. But I just, I want to encourage you this morning. Take a deep look. You might not be, maybe you are, in a court situation with somebody. But maybe there's some people that you have to take a deep look in the mirror. Remember your identity in Christ and you need to forgive and release some people. Uh, the prayer team's going to be up actually uh, right now during this song. We're not just going to wait until... Uh, the song's over. And if you need to respond today, I encourage you to do so. So would you stand with me this morning? Lord Jesus, all over this room today, God, would you remind us that we're the bride that you paid for? And we're supposed to paint a picture to this world with how we live our lives. We yield to you today. We respond to you today. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said.